0: security. And as you might have guessed, based off the Andy and Barney clip, we're going to talk about money. And a fear that I have is is that you're a first-time visitor to Rockbrook, and you're going to think that all we talk about is money all the time, because that's a, a stereotype people have at churches. The reality is at Rockbrook, we only talk about money three, maybe four times a year. And the other 48 weekends, we talk about sex. So... You may want to come back next weekend. But if you're visiting, you can relax, uh, because we don't ask visitors to give here. In fact, at Rockbrook, we we tell our visitors not to give. Uh, So you can just kick back and enjoy watching the rest of us squirm. But really, the focus is about replacing stress with security. Uh, And if you're going to replace stress with security, you've got to understand the relationship between stress and money and security and money. Uh, Because the way our culture thinks about money is 180 degrees out of phase with the truth. Uh, There is a perception that money promises security, freedom, and peace. But as millions of broken lives will tell you, money often doesn't deliver on its promises. And you can tell if you have money problems just by looking for the symptoms. i have got a list of symptoms here in your worship folder. Uh, first, your debt is growing each month. You're making only minimum payments uh, on your bills. Uh, you miss one paycheck, and you can't pay your rent, and you can't pay your bills. Uh, you and your spi- spouse fight about money regularly. Uh, you're not able to put money into savings or retirement each month. and you're constantly stressed about money. Now the Bible is not down on having money. Uh, the Bible is not down on being rich. Uh, God speaks very highly all through Scripture of people who work hard, who earn money, who save it, who invest it. Uh, in, in the Bible, profits are not obscene. Profits are seen as the reward for hard work and wise stewardship. So the Bible is not down on money. The Bible's not even down on being rich. The Bible is down on greed. And you don't have to be rich to be greedy. Poor people can be greedy. Because greed isn't about how much money you have. Greed is about how much money you want. Now, a lot of people misquote Scripture and they say that money is the root of all evil, but that is not what the Bible says. Here's the verse they're misquoting. It's 1 Timothy 6.10. It says, the love of money. That's greed. The love of money causes all kinds of trouble. Some people want money so much that they have given up their faith and caused themselves a lot of pain. You know, the danger is that money can tempt us away from God. Money can isolate us from God. Money can convince us that we don't need God. And yet, ironically, God is the one source in the universe that can give us what money can't buy us. Security, freedom, and peace. Now, where money turns sinister is when we find ourselves trusting the world's way to manage money rather than managing money God's way. Because the world's way and God's way are very, very different. The world says, here's how you manage your money. First, you get it. You get it. You don't necessarily have to earn it. You just get it. In fact, the world says that, that preferably you don't have to work hard for it. You know, The quicker and easier you can get your money, the better in the world's view. And then once you get money, then you enjoy it. But because we typically enjoy it too much, we have to go into debt to pay for what we enjoy. Now, we may try to save a little bit, but something always comes up. And since we're overextended, every little emergency causes us to tap into our savings. And then if there's anything left over, which there rarely is, then we'll give. That is not an effective way to manage your money. That's why we're in the mess we're in both personally and nationally, because the world's way is simply not an effective way to manage your money. Now, the Bible is not short on teaching about money. Uh, Many times Jesus used money as an illustration because he knew that how we handle our money reveals the level of our obedience. It reveals the depth of our faith. Stewardship, how we manage our money, is a litmus test of our spiritual maturity. Now, the Bible gives us lots of instruction on money. I don't have time to go into it all today, but we have a class here at Rockbrook. We have a nine-week class called Financial Peace University, and that course is going to be starting up August 5th, on Sunday mornings at 9 o'clock, uh, and you can sign up for it this weekend. It's a tremendous class, and it teaches you a process that can move you from financial stress to financial peace a biblical process that takes you from the negative symptoms of the world's way and moves you to the benefits of God's way. Look at the benefits of managing your money God's way. You don't live with financial strain. You don't struggle to make ends meet each month. You are completely out of debt. You aren't bound by the ties of materialism. Your needs are consistently met. You have the ability to save for your kid's education and for your retirement. You have the desire and the ability to help people in need. You're able to give to causes bigger than your own concerns. You live a life full of generosity, joy, and peace. I mean, what a contrast to what the world tries to sell you. Now, this process, today, I want to call it the journey toward generosity. And along the journey toward generosity, there are some paths that you must take. Uh, if you're going to become a person of generosity, a person who puts God first in your uh, life and doesn't put money first, uh, you need to start with the if-only path. Now, my earliest recollection of the if-only path was when I was a kid. I used to walk by the hardware store in Creston, Iowa, and look in the window at a red Stingray bicycle. It had a white banana seat and chrome butterfly handlebars, and I knew that if-only, only I could buy that bike, my life would be complete. It was $59.95 plus tax. And so I got a job walking beans and bucking hay bales on my uncle's farm. He paid me 75 cents an hour. It was hot, dirty, exhausting work, but over the course of about two and a half months, I saved up enough money to buy that bicycle. And we bought it and hauled it home in the back seat of my mom's 54 Ford Coupe And we got home, and I jumped on that bike and rode it into town. And, man, it was absolutely marvelous. But it wasn't too long before I began to think, well, you know, if only. If only I had something else. If only I could take the training wheels off this bike. And the bike was fun. And it worked fine, and it got me where I wanted to go, but honestly, it wasn't the life-changing possession I had dreamed that it would be. It was just a bike. It wasn't it. Now, I moved on to a string of if-onlys. You know, I wasn't satisfied with the bike. Eventually, it was if-only I had a car. And so I walked more beans, and I bucked more hay bales, and I earned enough to buy a car. But the car wasn't the life-changing possession that I dreamed it would be. It was just a car. And then if only became a job. And then if only became a house. And if only became a college degree. And none of those were the life-changing event that I dreamed of. They were good things, but they all fell short. Somehow they just led from one if only to another, but none of them were It. Now, maybe you're sitting there thinking, you know, I've been on that path. Or, or maybe you're thinking, I'm on that path. You know, if if I could just get into that college, if I could just get that job, if I could just take this trip, if I could just get, get that promotion, if I could just buy a house in that neighborhood, that would be great. But then when you get it, you realize this isn't it. Because... This path is really if I only had more. That's the problem. The truth is you don't really need more. The the Bible says those who love money will never have enough. How absurd to think that wealth brings true happiness. And you cannot move from this first path to the second path until you realize the truth of this verse. Until you realize "If only doesn't work. You've got to get off the treadmill. You've got to begin to rethink your money and your possessions and your purpose and your meaning and how they're related. Now, when you do that, you can move from the if-only path to the say-what path. What does God say about money? Let's look at what Jesus said in Matthew 6. He says, don't store up treasures here on earth. Where they can be eaten by moss and get rusty, and where thieves break in and steal. Wherever your treasure is, there your heart and thoughts will be also. And this is Barney's verse. This is Barney's struggle. What you can do with that money. Put it in the bank, thieves will steal it, put it in the mattress, it'll burn up, put it in the ground, uh, the the worms will get it. You know, what's going to happen? Jesus says, We were made for eternity. Don't waste your life piling up treasures here on earth. Treasure on earth turns into a pile of rust. Treasure stored up here can be stolen. Earthly treasure doesn't last. Jesus says earthly treasure isn't valuable; it's vulnerable. It doesn't last. So build your life on if you build your life on stuff, you're building your life on a foundation that is going to lead to stress and insecurity. God says if you want security, you need to store up your treasure in heaven. And God gives us a very specific way to do that throughout the Bible. key passage about this is Malachi 3.10. It says, Bring your full tithe to the temple treasury so there will be ample provision in my temple. Now, the word tithe means 10. The word tithe means 10%. 10% is the baseline for giving in the Bible. And you may ask, why is it 10%? And I'll tell you, I don't know. God doesn't tell us. But he's God. He can make it whatever he wants. He could have made it 90%. But he's very clear in his word. And what I do know is that God wants to have first place in your life. And he knows that when he's got your treasure, he's going to have your heart. And so God says, start with 10%. Give 10% back to God. Now, just imagine what would happen at Rockbrook if 100% of our members gave 10% back to God. I mean, imagine the explosion of ministry that could happen here. Imagine the life change in the families as they move from that negative list of symptoms to the positive list. It would be absolutely amazing. Now, many, if not most, of the families at Rockbrook tithe. I have mean, been preaching on this for 15 years. You're an obedient group of people. Uh, many, if not most of you, have, have moved to, to this in your life. And, and there is story after story after story in this church of God blessing and protecting people even during this time of financial difficulty. I mean, it's just amazing. Tithing works. It works. But this say what path can have some detours and some new turns on it. You know, some people, once they hear what God wants them to do with their money, they think, well, you know, I'm going to go back and try if only one more time. I mean, maybe I can keep my tithe and everything else too. So they go back to if only. Or some people say, well, I'm going to search the Bible. I'm going to look for a verse with a lower percentage. Uh, I'm going to look in the New Testament for a lower number than 10%. But in the New Testament, the numbers aren't lower. In the New Testament, uh, the New Testament says you need to give over and above. The New Testament says you need to give sacrificially, generously, hilariously. It says you should give sacrificially out of your need. You should give abundantly out of your poverty. Folks, the New Testament does not let you off the hook on tithing. The New Testament sets the hook. It says, hey, this is the starting point, not the end goal. Now, what some Christians will do is they say, you know, I'm going to obey God in every other area of my life other than tithing. I'm going to take a pass on giving because God is forgiving, And if I do almost everything else, uh, and surely he'll let me slide on the money. Surely 5% or even 3% uh, will be enough to get by. Now, you can stall out on the say what path. You can spend your time trying to figure out a loophole or figure out why you're the exception. But when you're ready to step up to the responsibility to tithe, you're ready to step onto the next path. And that path is a little scarier. It requires more faith. It requires more obedience. It's a path called what if. And I realize that God wants me to tithe, and then I face the what if path. What if I add up all my bills and it's more than I make? What if I'm upside down in my house or my car? What if I lose my money? What if I lose my job? What if I get sick? I can't afford to do this. You know, really, those are just excuses fueled by fear. Because the question is what if I'm afraid? You know, some say that the reason Christians don't give is because they're greedy. I don't think the reason that Christians don't give is because of greed. I think the reason Christians don't give is because of fear. It's fear. They're afraid their money's going to run out. They're afraid that if they tithe to God right off the top, they're going to get halfway through their bills and run out of money. They're afraid. And I know that that's one of the motivations because time to time over the years, I've been afraid. You know, I've had to really stop and think and study and ask myself, do I really believe that God will do what He says He will do? And my fear kicks in until I realize how irrational my fear is. Let me illustrate. The Bible often uses illustrations about farmers. The illustration of a farmer takes the seed and sows it in the field. And the Bible says you will reap what you sow. If you sow sparingly, you'll reap sparingly. If you sow generously, you'll reap abundantly. But whatever you sow, that's what you will reap. Now imagine that a farmer wants a really big crop. What if a farmer desires a big harvest, but he is afraid to plant the seed? Because it's a risk. It's a risk for a farmer. What if I take all this seed? It's the only seed, it's the only grain I've got. What if I take this grain and I sow it all and then it doesn't grow? What what, what if there's a drought? What what if the birds eat it? What if it molds in the field? What what if there's a blight? What if, what if, what if, what if I can't plant this seed? Do you realize how irrational that is? I mean, if you want to reap a harvest, what what would you tell the farmer? Plant the seed. If you want a big crop, You've got to plant the seed. Your fear is irrational. And I've learned over and over again that the enemy of spiritual growth is fear. It's fear. It says, I don't believe God will do what he's promised to do. But the more I learn from God's word, the more I experience God himself in my life, the more I realize I shouldn't be afraid of giving too much. I should be afraid of giving too little. I should be afraid of giving. I mean, I cannot imagine getting to heaven and thinking, I wish I would have given less. You know, these people who are looking for a lower percentage, I mean, do you really think that you're going to get to heaven and you're going to be disappointed because I gave 10% and really all I needed to give was 8? I could have spent more for stuff on earth. And instead, I've got it stored up here in heaven where it's going to last. And we're not going to think like that. You won't be in heaven 20 seconds till you wish you would have given more then you will wish you would have done more for the cause of Christ. Jesus said this in Luke 12, 48, and says, Much is required of those to whom much is given, for their responsibility is greater. You know, we've got this myth in our culture today that we're poor and somebody else has all the money. We're poor and all the rich people are the bad guys. They've got all the resources. Truth is, folks, we are the richest generation that has ever walked the face of the earth. Much has been given to us. Much is required. Our responsibility is great. And when we step off of that path of fear and we move to the path of I will, I will give obediently. You fight through your fear and you say, God, I'm going to tithe. Not because it's easy, but because I want to obey what God wants me to do. I tithe because I want to be faithful to him. Now, I'll be honest with you, I love to teach on tithing. These three or four times a year when I teach these principles, they are my favorite sermons. Because there is just such a tremendous upside to this. I mean, I'm so glad you're here this weekend to hear this. I want you to learn to trust God's promises and see God deliver. And I love to teach on this. It produces such amazing life change. It moves people from the negative list of symptoms to the positive list. It moves people from stress to security. Malachi 3.10, another translation, says, I am the Lord all-powerful, and I challenge you to put me to the test. Bring the entire 10%. Then I will open the windows of heaven and flood you of blessing after blessing. God says that if you obey Him and you put Him to the test, He will open up heaven and pour out blessing. I mean, the Bible repeatedly promises that your obedient giving will set in motion a series of spiritual blessings. But when you begin to tithe, it's like a trigger that sets off God's blessing in your life. Now, don't walk out of here misunderstanding what I'm saying. I am not saying that if you tithe, God will make you financially wealthy. I'm not saying that if you tithe, God will make you filthy rich. That's not the guarantee. The guarantee is not riches, the guarantee is richness. Rich relationships, rich meaningful work, rich ministry, rich life experiences. And the reason I can guarantee that that's going to happen is because God is the one who makes the guarantee. God says, put me to the test. Proverbs 3 says, honor the Lord by giving him the first part of all your income. That's the tithe. And he will fill your barns with wheat and barley. Circle the word fill. And overflow your wine vats with the finest wines. Now, I realize that the metaphors here are, aren't ones that are real attractive to us. I mean, what am I going to do with barns full of wheat and barley and vats full of wine? I mean, you know, I don't bake bread and I don't drink wine, so what am I going to do with this stuff? But the promise is the filling and the overflowing. That's the promise. Proverbs 11 says, it is possible to give freely and become more wealthy. The generous prosper and are satisfied. I mean, wouldn't you love to just be satisfied? What would that feel like? Proverbs 22, blessed are those who are generous. And story after story in this church, I have heard people testify to the fact that God has proven himself faithful. That God blesses us when we give he, can, he cannot out give God. He just keeps giving and re-giving and refilling. Now, I can't tell you how God is going to bless you. I can just tell you that God promises that when we tithe, He's going to open up heaven and He's going to fill and overflow and bless your life. And I can point to my own life. I can point to my own life. As a new believer, 38 years ago, I, I learned the principle of tithing and I began to tithe. And I have been blessed with a life better than the life I ever dreamed of. I mean, I have a marvelous life because of God's blessing on my life. I'm not rich financially, quite frankly. I don't want to be. You know, I'm just satisfied with God's blessing. You know, as pastor of this church, I don't ask you to tithe for the sake of this church. I don't teach about tithing because the church has needs. You know, God is going to take care of this church whether you tithe or not. Jesus Christ said, I will build my church. And somebody's disobedience on tithing isn't going to stop it. It's just a question of, are you going to get in on the blessing or not? If you choose another path, you're choosing a life outside of God's blessing and God's protection. And you're choosing a life where you're not going to enjoy the benefits that come from following God. And I don't want you to miss out on that blessing. And if you leave here today and you think Rockbrook Church is all about the money, then you didn't hear me, you just heard what you wanted to hear. Because I'm not asking you to do this for the sake of this church. I'm asking you to manage your money God's way because the journey toward generosity is the path from stress to security. Now, I want to give you some action steps here today. How, how do you do this? How do you put it in place? First, you've got to design a plan. You don't drift into generosity and wake up one day going, oh, my bills are paid, I've got savings, I'm a generous giver. No, you've got to have a plan. You've got to have a budget. Proverbs 21 says, plan carefully and you'll have plenty. If you act too quickly, you'll never have enough. And I've experienced in my own life that without a plan, it is so easy for your money to get out of control. Look, folks, money doesn't talk. Money just walks away quietly. Okay? Have you noticed how money is woven into the fabric of your emotions? You know, when you're sad, what do you want to do? Spend money? You go for dinner and a movie. You swing by Best Buy and buy a flat screen. Because that makes you feel better for a little while. You know, what do you do when you're happy and you want to celebrate? Well, you go to dinner and a movie, you swing by Best Buy, and you buy another flat screen. Because it's a party. Okay? You know, what do you do when you're bored? Dinner, movie, buy a TV. Because it's interesting. You know, without a plan, without a strategy, without some restraints, you won't be able to control the desire to spend. So you've got to get a plan. Now we teach a plan here at Rockbrook that's taught by Christian financial planners all over the world. It's the 10-10-10-70 plan. And this is how it works. The first 10%, right off the top, you tithe, you give back to God. Where my treasure is, that's where my heart will be. God wants the first fruits. And so the first 10%, right off the top, goes back to God. The second 10%, goes into savings. That's for your retirement. That's for your future. You know, it's not for for little emergencies that pop up like tires and brakes. No, this is long-term savings. And then the third 10%, you invest. Now, if you have debt, the best investment you can make is to pay off your debt. So you put that 10% toward debt elimination, and then when your debt's eliminated, now you begin to invest with the goal of building wealth. And then you live on the remaining 70%. Tithe 10%, save 10%, invest 10%, and you live on the rest. You live within your means. You stay out of debt. Now, you may think, if I have to live on 70% of my income, I'm going to have to lower my standard of living. Because I'm not living on 70%. I'm not even living on 100%. Most Americans are living on 105% to 125% of their income. That's why their debt goes up every month. So yes, I'm asking you to adjust your standard of living. I'm asking you to move from this negative list, you know, Debt grows. Minimum monthly payments can't cover your bills. You fight about money all the time. You're unable to save. You're stressed about money. I'm asking you to move from that standard of living to the positive standard. No financial strain. No struggle to pay bills. Completely out of debt. You're not materialistic. Your needs are met. You're saving for the future. You've got the ability to help people in need. You've got the resources to give. Generosity, joy, and peace characterize your life. I mean, folks, that is not a lower standard of living. That's a higher standard of living. So you design the plan and you work the plan to get you there. Now, the next action step is to give until it requires faith. Now, for some of you, a tithe is going to require a tremendous amount of faith. Honestly, that's the point of it. But for some of you, 10% doesn't require faith. You can do 10% without feeling it. I mean, I'll be honest with you, 10% doesn't require faith from me. I'm not being boastful about that. It's just I started giving 10% 38 years ago, and so it's just a habit. It's normal. It's comfortable for me. So I've had to move up to a level that requires more faith. You know, for some of you, your tithe has become routine. It's safe. It doesn't require faith. And I invite you to push yourself to the point of being uncomfortable. I'm not saying push yourself to the point where you're irresponsible or foolish or unwise. I'm just saying push yourself to where you feel a little uncomfortable about it. Because the greatest times in my life spiritually have been the times when I have moved past my comfort zone and I've stepped out in faith. Those are the times when God shows up. Now here's a good diagnostic question for your heart. Ask yourself, am I more generous now than I was a year ago? And I know incomes can change, but am I more generous now than I was a year ago? Does my giving require any more faith now than it did before? See, our world is so preoccupied with increasing their standard of living. As Christians, we need to be preoccupied with increasing our standard of giving. Because to those who much has been given, much is required. You know, we're called to be different than the world. Now, whether you're a visitor or an attender or a member, whether you're a giver or tither or not, I want to leave you with one last thing here to, to help you really get your arms around this whole thing. Next action step is to celebrate your worth. I mean, do you know how much you're worth? I don't mean your net worth, your financial worth, I mean your life worth. How much is your life worth? during this housing crunch, I drive through my neighborhood and I see houses for sale. And I think, well, I wonder how much my house is worth. How much is my house worth? I had a realtor friend who told me, Kelly, your house is worth whatever somebody else is willing to pay for it. That's what it's worth. Well, the same is true with your self-worth, with your life worth. Your life is worth whatever somebody else is willing to pay for it. And 1 Peter 1 says that you were purchased at a tremendous price. You were bought not with something that ruins like gold and silver. It was the costly sacrifice of Christ. The the purchase price for your salvation, for your eternal life, was not gold or silver. It was the blood of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You know how much you're worth? You're worth the life, blood, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's how much you're worth. And if you open your heart and mind to that truth, it'll change everything about your life. Maybe you've fallen into the culture trap. Maybe you've bought into the world's way of looking at wealth and worth. You've got all the negative symptoms going on in your life. You know, that, that financial scramble is like chasing after the wind. Ecclesiastes 6 says, Enjoy what you have rather than desiring what you don't have. Just dreaming about nice things is meaningless. It's like chasing the wind. You know, when you chase the wind, all it does is worry out. So give it up. Open your heart and mind to your true worth that you were bought with a price. And then respond to that purchase by living a generous life. Because generous giving leads to stress-free living. Let's pray again. God, I just thank you for paying a tremendous price so that we can have a relationship with you. And, And Lord, I just would pray that as a church family, that you would help us to stop chasing the wind, to stop looking to money as the source of our security, freedom, and peace. God, help us to find our security, our satisfaction. God, we want to give back to you graciously, generously, what you've given to us. So help us fight past our fear and help us to put our faith in you and your promises. God, you you have promised to provide for us if we put you first in our lives. So I pray that we would be able to do that. We ask it in Jesus' name.